Chapter Two, Part Three of The History of the Catholic Church from the Renaissance to the French Revolution, Volume Two, by Reverend James McCaffrey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The struggle between the old principles and the new continued, notwithstanding all Henry's attempts to secure unanimity. As early as fifteen forty, a set of questions had been circulated amongst the bishops and as a result of the replies received and of the discussions that took place in convocation a book was issued entitled a necessary doctrine and an erudition for any christian man fifteen forty three it was issued by order of the king and for this reason is known as the king's book in contradistinction to the bishop's book published with his permission but not by his authorization just as the bishop's book represented a revision of the ten articles so the king's book was an extension or completion of the bishop's book in many respects even more catholic in its tone than the original the king was now nearing his end rapidly and both parties in the royal council strove hard for mastery gardiner and bonner bishop of london stood firm in defence of catholic doctrine and once or twice it seemed as if they were about to succeed in displacing cranmer from the favour of the king but the dangers of an attack from the united forces of france and the emperor especially after the peace of crepy had been concluded fifteen forty four and made it necessary for henry not to close the door against an alliance with the protestant princes of germany by an attack on cranmer who was regarded by them as an active sympathizer once indeed henry ordered that the archbishop should be arrested but a sudden change of mind took place and the order for the arrest was cancelled a new parliament met in fifteen forty five the royal exchequer had been emptied by the war with france and scotland and to replenish it an act was passed empowering the king to dissolve chantries hospitals and free chapels and to appropriate their revenues for his own use henry addressed the parliament on christmas eve fifteen forty five in a speech in which he deplored the religious differences that divided his people differences which were due he said partly to the obstinacy of the clergy some of whom wished to cling to all the old ways, while others of them would be content with nothing less than a complete renewal, partly to the fault of the people, who spoke scandalously of their clergy, and abused the scriptures they had been permitted to read. In itself this speech was a sad commentary on Henry's religious campaign, containing as it did a confession that despite all his violence and persecution, religious formularies imposed by royal authority were not sufficient to preserve religious unity. During the year 1546, though many persons were still sent to the stake for denying transubstantiation, the power of Cranmer and his party was on the increase. The Earl of Hertford, uncle of the young Prince Edward, and Cranmer secured the upper hand in the council, and the Duke of Norfolk, together with his son the Earl of Surrey, was imprisoned in the Tower, December 1546. Surrey was tried and executed, and a similar fate was in store for the Duke were it not that before the death sentence could be carried out henry himself had been summoned before the judgment seat of god twenty eighth january fifteen forty seven for some weeks before his death the condition of the king had been serious but the earl of hertford and his party kept the sickness and even the death a secret until all their plans had been matured on the thirty first january edward the sixth was proclaimed king and the triumph of the lutheran party seemed assured on the death of henry the eighth all parties looked forward to a complete change in the religious condition of england on the one hand those who longed for a return to roman obedience 
believed that royal supremacy must of necessity prove both unintelligible and impracticable in the case of a mere child like edward the sixth fifteen forty seven to fifty three while on the other hand those who favoured a closer approximation to the theology and practices of wittenberg or of geneva saw in the death of henry and the succession of a helpless young king an exceptional opportunity for carrying out designs against which henry had erected such formidable barriers to both parties it was evident that as best edward the sixth could be but a tool in the hands of his advisers and that whichever section could capture the king and the machinery of government might hope to mould the religious beliefs of the english people for more than a year before the death of henry the eighth edward seymour earl of hertford and uncle of edward the sixth the earl of essex brother of catherine parr viscount lyle lord admiral and afterwards earl of warwick all of whom were in favour of religious innovations had been advancing steadily in power to the discomfiture of the conservative section led by bishop gardiner the duke of norfolk and the lord chancellor royalistly the death of henry the eighth had been kept a secret until the earl of hertford had all his plans matured for securing control and for the proclamation of edward the sixth thirty first january fifteen forty seven then a boy of ten years henry the eighth had bequeathed the crown to his son and on his death without heirs to his daughters in turn the princess mary daughter of catherine of aragon and elizabeth daughter of anne boleyn by his will also he appointed a council the members of which were to govern the kingdom as a body till the king should attain his eighteenth year but he sought to provide against any serious innovations by authorizing the king to repeal all changes that might have been made by the council during his minority if one may judge from the terms of his will henry's religious views at his death were evidently what they had been when in fifteen thirty nine he passed the statute of six articles but at the same time it is a noteworthy fact that he excluded bishop gardiner from the list of executors of his will and appointed two divines well known for their leaning towards german theology as tutors to the young king in nearly every particular the council of executors failed to carry out the wishes of the late king the earl of hertford created later on duke of somerset became protector with almost royal powers and instead of defending the religious settlement the majority of the council set themselves from the very beginning to initiate a more advanced policy cranmer as archbishop of canterbury could be relied upon to support such a course of action while of the principal men who might be expected to oppose it the duke of norfolk was a prisoner in the tower and the lord chancellor royalistly was dismissed to make way for a more pliable successor the bishops who were regarded merely as state officials were commanded to take out new commissions cranmer obeyed without protest as did all the others except gardiner who questioned the authority of the council to issue such a command at least until the supreme head of the church should have reached his majority those who had been held in check by the repressive legislation of henry the eighth felt themselves free to renew the attacks on the practices and doctrines of the church the royal preachers who had been appointed for the lenten sermons dr barlow bishop of st david's ridley one of cranmer's chaplains and others not content with abusing the bishop of rome declared war on images relics and even on the lenten fast and abstinences against such novelties gardiner addressed an indignant protest to the protector and council warning them that during the minority of the king there was no power in england competent to change the religious settlement that had been accomplished by henry the eighth but his protests fell on deaf ears the war against images was carried on vigorously 
though legally only those images that had been abused were forbidden and even in bishop gardiner's own diocese he was powerless to resist those who knew they could count on the support of the protector in july fifteen forty seven two important publications were issued one the injunctions of edward the sixth the other the book of homilies composed by cranmer and issued by the authority of the council the former of these commanded that sermons should be delivered at fixed intervals against the bishop of rome that images which had been abused shrines pictures and other monuments of superstition should be destroyed that the gospels and epistles should be read in english that alms boxes should be set up in all churches and that the clergy should inform their people that the money spent on pardons pilgrimages candles and other blind devotions should now be devoted to the support of the poor the book of homilies was to serve as a guide for preachers in their public services a royal commission was appointed to insist upon the observance of these injunctions but in london bishop bonner refused at first to accept the commands of the visitors and though later on he weakened in his resistance he was committed to prison as a warning to others gardiner boldly denounced the visitation as illegal and unwarrantable but the council instead of meeting his arguments and remonstrances ordered his arrest september fifteen forty seven in many places the proclamation for the removal of images led to violent disturbances and free fights within the churches were not uncommon to put an end to any misunderstanding on this subject for the future the council ordered the removal of all images from the churches february fifteen forty eight for various reasons the protector and council delayed assembling parliament as long as possible but at last it was convoked to meet in november fifteen forty seven as happened in the case of all the parliaments in the tudor period careful steps were taken to ensure that only men who could be relied upon were returned by the sheriffs neither from the lay members in the house of lords many of whom had been enriched by the plunder of the monasteries nor from the spiritual peers lately appointed could any effective resistance be expected while the bishops who were still strongly catholic in tone were deprived of a capable leader by the imprisonment of gardiner it was significant that in the mass celebrated at the opening of parliament the gloria creed and agnus dei were sung in english the bishops had been taught a lesson already by being forced to take out new commissions like other officers of the crown by having their jurisdiction suspended during the progress of the royal visitation and by being prohibited from preaching outside their own cathedrals but lest they might have any lingering doubts about the source or extent of their jurisdiction parliament enacted that for the future bishops should be appointed not by election but by royal letters patent and that all their official documents should be issued in the king's name and under his seal or some other seal authorized by him all the acts against heresy that had been passed since the days of richard the second including the statute of six articles were repealed most of the new treason felonies created during the previous reign were abolished and though denial of royal supremacy was accounted still as treason it was enacted that by merely speaking against it one did not merit the punishment of death unless for the third offence the question of the blessed eucharist had come to the front rapidly owing to the violent and abusive sermons of some of the new preachers and the irreverent and sacrilegious conduct of those who accepted their teaching the bishops of the old school demanded that measures should be taken to prevent such attacks on the very centre point of christian worship while cranmer and his supporters were determined to insist upon communion under both kinds apparently two different measures were introduced which were merged ultimately into one act 
whereby it was decreed that all who spoke irreverently against the blessed eucharist should be punished by fines and imprisonment and that communion should be administered under both kinds except necessity otherwise required the linking together of these two acts was a clever move to ensure the support of the bishops who desired to put down irreverence against the eucharist and it is noteworthy that out of the eleven bishops present five voted against the measure even in its improved form already an act had been passed in the previous reign against colleges chantries guilds etc but since most of these remained as yet undisturbed it was determined to replenish the royal treasury by decreeing their immediate dissolution and by vesting their property in the king this was done with the avowed object of diverting the funds from superstitious uses to the erection of grammar schools the maintenance of students at the universities and the relief of the poor but in reality the property of the guilds and of the free schools and chantry schools was confiscated and little if anything was done for the improvement of education or for the relief of the poor edward the sixth is represented generally as a founder of the english grammar schools and colleges but it would be much more correct to say that through his greedy ministers he was their destroyer true indeed he established a few colleges and hospitals but such benefices was only a poor return for the wholesale overthrow of more than four hundred flourishing educational establishments and for the confiscation of thousands of pounds bequeathed by generous benefactors for the education of the poor convocation had met on the day after the assembly of parliament the lower house presented four petitions to the bishops the most important of which was that the proctors of the clergy should be admitted to parliament or at least the ecclesiastical legislation should not pass until the clergy had been consulted but the bishops were too conscious of their helplessness to support such an appeal it is doubtful if the bill regarding communion under both kinds was ever submitted regularly to convocation though later on a proposal to abolish the canons enforcing clerical celibacy was carried by a majority it is asserted and apparently on good authority that the higher and more learned of the clergy consented to this proposal only under pressure the year fifteen forty eight opened ominously for the catholic party preachers licensed by the archbishop of canterbury and protected openly by the court delivered wild harangues against catholic doctrines and practices pamphlets for the most part translations of heretical works published in germany or switzerland attacking the mass transubstantiation and the real presence were sold publicly in the marketplaces without any interference from the authorities in january a royal proclamation was issued enjoining the observance of the lenten fasts but ten days later an order was made forbidding the use of candles on candlemas day of ashes on ash wednesday or of palms on palm sunday this was followed quickly by a command for the removal of all statues images pictures etc from the churches the use of communion under both kinds was to come into force at easter fifteen forty eight and to prepare for this a royal proclamation was set forth making obligatory the english order of communion as the new rite regarded only the communion of the laity the latin mass was to remain in use as heretofore without any varying of any rite or ceremony the clergy were commanded to announce the sunday on which they proposed to distribute communion to their flocks after the priest had himself communicated the communicants who did not wish to go to confession should make a general confession and should receive communion under both kinds the whole service being completed by the usual blessing this was a clever trick to prepare the way for still greater changes owing to the retention of the latin mass 
it was expected that the new communion service would not lead to serious trouble while at the same time it would accustom the people to portions of the mass being read in english and would imply both that auricular confession was unnecessary and that mass without communion of the laity was of no particular importance the council anticipated that the communion service should prove unacceptable to many of the clergy and their anticipations were fulfilled though as shall be seen they adopted a novel method of allaying the trouble bishop gardiner who had been kept in prison while parliament was in session lest his presence in the upper house might lead to trouble was released in january fifteen forty eight but in may a peremptory summons was issued commanding him to come to london without delay he obeyed and for some time negotiations were carried on until at last he was ordered to preach against the pope monasteries confession and in favour of the english communion service twenty ninth june he was urged not to treat of the sacrifice of the mass or of transubstantiation and warned of the serious consequences that might ensue in case he disobeyed but gardiner was a man who could not be deterred by such means from speaking his mind and as a consequence he was again placed under arrest and sent as a prisoner to the tower cranmer who had rejected the authority of the pope because he was a foreigner finding that he could get no support from the clergy or the universities for in spite of everything that had taken place the theology of oxford and cambridge was still frankly conservative invited preachers to come from abroad to assist in weaning the english nation from the catholic faith the men who responded to his call formed a motley crowd they were germans like martin bucher and paul fagius italian apostate friars like peter martyr pietro martire Remigli, and ochino frenchmen like jean veron poles like john alasco belgians like charles utenhove alasco's disciple and jews like emmanuel Chamelius the order for the total removal of images and for the communion service in english led to serious disturbances even in the london churches where the new opinions should have found the strongest support and confusion reigned throughout the country the communion service in england was however only the prelude to the total abolition of the mass early in fifteen forty eight a series of questions had been addressed by cranmer to the bishops regarding the value of the mass as a religious service apart from the communion the bishops were asked to say also whether private masses offered for the living and the dead should continue to be celebrated and what language should be used in their replies cramner and ridley favoured innovation and were supported generally by holbeach barlow cox and taylor one bishop goodrich of ely expressed his willingness to accept whatever might be enjoined while the rest of the bishops adopted a conservative attitude but whatever might be the opinions of the bishops generally the protector and cramner were determined to procure the abolition of the mass later in the year an assembly of the bishops was held to discuss the new english service to be substituted in its place it is difficult to determine what precisely was done at this meeting from the discussions which took place afterwards in the house of lords it is clear that the bishops could not agree upon the eucharist that all with one exception signed their names to a rough draft drawn up on the understanding that they did not commit themselves thereby to cramner's views and that the episcopal report was changed by some authority before it was presented to parliament especially by the omission of the word oblation in regard to the mass that the book of common prayer as such was ever submitted to or approved by a formal convocation of the clergy cannot be shown parliament met in november fifteen forty eight 
to put an end to the religious confusion that had arisen an act of uniformity enjoining on all clergy the use of the book of common prayer was introduced the main discussion centered around the eucharist and the mass bishop tunstall of durham objected that by the omission of the adoration it was implied that there was nothing in the sacrament except bread and wine a contention that he could not accept as he believed in the real presence of the body and blood of christ both spiritual and carnal bishop thoroughby of westminster maintained that the bishops had never agreed to the doctrine contained in the book regarding the eucharist but had allowed it merely to go forward for discussion the protector reproved him warmly for his tone and statement but thoroughby stood firmly by his point of view adding the interesting item of information that when the book left the hands of the bishops it contained the word oblation in reference to the mass which word has since been omitted bonner of london pointed out that the book of common prayer embodying as it did statements condemned abroad and in england as heresy should not be accepted cranmer and ridley defended strongly the eucharistic doctrine it contained when the disputation between the bishops had been closed nineteenth december fifteen forty eight the bill for uniformity was brought down and read in the commons of the bishops present in the house of lords ten voted in favour of the measure and eight against it gardiner was still in prison the bishop of landoff who had spoken against cranmer was absent from the division and some others are not accounted for the first act of uniformity fifteen forty eight as it is called displaced the mass as it had been celebrated for centuries in the english church and substituted in its place the new liturgy contained in the book of common prayer this latter while differing completely from any rite that had been followed in the catholic church had a close affinity both in regard to the rites themselves and the ceremonies for the administration of the sacraments to the liturgy introduced by the german lutherans according to the act of parliament it was to come into force on whit sunday the ninth june fifteen forty nine that it was expected to meet with strong opposition is evident from the prohibition against plays songs rhymes etc holding it up to ridicule as well as by the heavy fines prescribed against those who might endeavour to prevent clergymen from following it forfeiture of a year's revenue together with imprisonment for six months was the penalty to be inflicted on any clergyman who refused to follow the new liturgy complete deprivation and imprisonment were prescribed for the second offence and the third offence was to be punished by lifelong imprisonment for preventing any clergyman from adopting the new liturgy the penalties were for the first offence a fine of ten pounds for the second twenty pounds and for the third forfeiture and perpetual imprisonment Finally, Parliament satisfied Cranmer's scruples by permitting clergy to contract marriages. The attempt to abolish the Mass and to force the new liturgy on the English people led to risings and disturbances throughout the country. In London, where it might have been expected that the influence of the court should have secured its ready acceptance, many of the churches maintained the old service, in spite of the frantic efforts of Cranmer and his subordinates bishop bonner was reproved sharply for encouraging the disobedience of his clergy and as he failed to give satisfaction to the government he was committed to prison in devonshire and cornwall the peasants and country gentlemen rose in arms to protest against the new service which they had likened to a christmas game and to demand the restoration of the mass communion under one kind holy water palms ashes images and pictures they insisted that the six articles of Henry the Eighth should be enforced once more, and that Cardinal Pole should be recalled from Rome, and honoured with a seat at the council. 
in the universities of oxford and cambridge where royal visitors and hired foreigners like peter martyr Bucher and Ochino were doing their best to decatholicize these seats of learning, violent commotions took place that served to arouse both students and people, and soon the country around Oxford was in a blaze. The religious disturbances encouraged those who preferred small farms and sturdy laborers to grazing enclosures and sheep to raise the standard of revolt against the new economical tendencies and to accept the leadership of the Norfolk tanner, William Kett. By the strenuous exertions of the protector and the council, backed as they were by foreign mercenaries raised in Italy and Germany to fight against Scotland, these rebellions were put down by force, and the leaders, both lay and clerical, were punished with merciless severity. The disturbed condition of the country, however, the open dissatisfaction of the Catholic party, the compromises that were offered to those who fought against enclosures, and the unfortunate war with France into which the country had been plunged, pointed to Somerset's unfitness for the office of protector. A combination was formed against him by the Earl of Warwick, assisted by the leaders of the Catholic party. He was arrested, found guilty, and deprived of all his offices, December 1549, and the Earl of Warwick, created later Duke of Northumberland, secured the principal share in the new government. Cramner and his foreign assistants were filled with alarm for the future of their cause. They feared that the new administration would be controlled by Ryathesley, ex-Chancellor, the Adrundles, Southwell, and the prominent Catholics, that Gardiner and Bonner might be released from imprisonment, and that the demands of many of the insurgents for the abolition of the Book of Common Prayer and the restoration of the Mass might be conceded. The Catholic party were filled with new hope. In Oxford and throughout the country the old missiles and vestments that had been hidden away were brought forth again and the offices and mass were sung as they had been for centuries. But Warwick soon showed that the change of rulers meant no change in the religious policy of the government. Gardiner and Bonner were still kept in confinement. Ralthusley was dismissed from the council. Many of the other Catholic noblemen were imprisoned, and Somerset, who was supposed to have fallen a victim to the hatred of the Catholics, was released from his prison and readmitted to the Privy Council, 1550 by the inglorious war with france and by the still more inglorious peace of boulogne the government felt itself free to devote its energies to the religious situation at home warwick went over completely to the camp of the reforming party and determined in consolation with them to push forward the anti-catholic campaign the parliament that assembled in november fifteen forty nine was distinctly radical in its tendencies in the house of lords the bishops complained that their authority had been destroyed and that their orders were set at naught in reply they were requested to formulate a proposal for redress but on such a proposal having been submitted their demands were regarded by the laymen as exorbitant a commission was appointed against the wishes of a strong minority of the bishops to draw up a new ordinal as a complement to the book of common prayer the committee was appointed on the 2nd February, 1550, and it appears to have finished its work within a week. In the new ordinal, 1550, the ceremonies for the conferring of tonsure, minor orders, and subdeaconship were omitted entirely, while the ordination rites for deacons, priests, and bishops were considerably modified. Just as the sacrificial character of the Mass had been dropped out of the Book of Common Prayer, so too the notion of a real priesthood disappeared from the forms for ordination. In spite of the opposition of a large body of the bishops, an act was passed ordering the destruction of all missals, antiphonals, processionals, manuals, ordinals, etc., used formerly in the service of the church, 
and not approved of by the king's majesty as well as for the removal of all images except any image or picture set or graven upon any tomb in any church chapel or churchyard only for a monument of any king prince nobleman or other dead person who had not been commonly reputed and taken for a saint as a result of this measure a wholesale destruction of valuable books and manuscripts took place in the king's own library at westminster and throughout the country the royal visitors entrusted with the difficult work of protestantizing oxford acting under the guidance of dr cox chancellor of the university or chancellor as he was called ransacked the college libraries tore up and burned priceless manuscripts or sold them as waste paper and even went so far as to demand the destruction of the chapel windows lest these beautiful specimens of art might encourage loyalty to the old religion that had inspired their artists and donors as it had been determined to abandon completely the religious conservatism of the former reign it was felt absolutely necessary to remove the catholic-minded bishops to make way for men of the new school on whom the government could rely with confidence gardiner of winchester and bonner of london were already in prison heath of worcester who had refused to agree to the new ordinal was arrested in march fifteen fifty as was also day of chichester in october tunstall of durham whose conservative views were well known to all was placed under surveillance in may fifteen fifty one and thrown into prison together with his dean in the following november in a short time a sentence of deprivation was issued against bonner heath day and gardiner bishop thurlby of westminster who had given great offence by his uncompromising attitude regarding the blessed eucharist was removed from westminster where his presence was highly inconvenient to norwich and the aged bishop voicey was forced to resign the see of exeter to make way for a more reliable and more active man at the same time steps were taken in the universities to drive out the men whose influence might be used against the government's plans the sees of westminster and london were combined and handed over to ridley of rochester one of cramner's ablest and most advanced lieutenants hooper who looked to zwingli as his religious guide was appointed to gloucester but as he objected to the episcopal oath and episcopal vestments and as he insisted on his rights of private judgment so far as to write publicly against those things that had been sanctioned by the supreme head of the church it was necessary to imprison him before he could be reduced to a proper frame of mind for the imposition of cramner's hands march fifteen fifty one Ponnet was appointed to rochester and on the deprivation of gardiner to winchester where his scandalous and public connection with the wife of a nottingham burgher was not calculated to influence the longing of his flock for the new teaching scory was appointed to rochester and afterwards to chichester and miles coverdale to oxford the zeal of the new bishops in seeking out the suppression of papistical practices and their readiness to place the property of the churches at northumberland's disposal soon showed that those who selected them had made no mistake on ridley's arrival in london he held a conference for the purpose of compelling the clergy to adopt the new liturgy in place of the mass he issued an order for the removal of altars and for the erection in their places of honest tables decently covered whereon communion might be celebrated the high altar in the cathedral of st paul was pulled down and a plain communion table set up in its stead as such a sacrilegious innovation was resented by a great body of both clergy and people the council felt it necessary to instruct the sheriff of middlesex to enforce the commands of the bishop the example thus set in the capital was to be followed throughout the country 
in november fifteen fifty letters were sent out to all the bishops in the name of the youthful head of the church commanding them to pull down the altars in their dioceses and for disobedience to this order bishop day was arrested hooper once his scruples regarding the episcopal oath and vestments had been removed threw himself with ardour into the work of reforming the clergy of his diocese of worcester and gloucester but only to find that nothing less than a royal decree could serve to detach them from their old superstitions fifteen fifty two while the wholesale work of destruction was being pushed forward care was taken that none of the spoils derived from the plunder of the churches should go to private individuals warwick insisted on the new bishops handing over large portions of episcopal estates to be conferred on his favourites and royal commissions were issued to take inventories of ecclesiastical property during the years fifteen fifty one and fifteen fifty two the churches were stripped of their valuables and the church plate chalices copes vestments and altar cloths were disposed of to provide money for the impecunious members of the council violent measures such as these were not likely to win popularity for the new religion nor to bring about dogmatic unity risings took place in leicester northampton rutland and berkshire and free fights were witnessed even in the churches of london rumours of conspiracy especially in the north where the earls of shrewsbury and derby still clung to the catholic faith were circulated and fears of a french invasion were not entirely without foundation a new act of uniformity was decreed fifteen fifty two threatening spiritual and temporal punishments against laymen who neglected to attend common prayer on sundays and holy days acts were passed for the relief of the poor who had been rendered destitute by the suppression of the monasteries and the wholesale enclosures and to comfort the married clergy whose children were still regarded commonly as illegitimate a second measure was passed legalizing such unions fighting in churches and churchyards was to be put down with a heavy hand if spiritual punishments could not suffice for the maintenance of order offenders were to be deprived of an ear or branded on the cheek with a red-hot iron though according to some the book of common prayer had been compiled under the guidance of the holy ghost soon it came to be regarded by many as unsatisfactory the men who had rejected the authority of the pope because he was a foreigner to follow the teaching of apostate friars from switzerland italy poland and germany clamoured for its revision on the ground that it seemed to uphold the real and corporal presence of christ in the eucharist cranmer who had accepted transubstantiation in the days of henry the eighth and had defended a kind of real presence in fifteen forty nine veered gradually towards calvin's teaching on the eucharist in order to remove the ambiguities and difficulties of the old prayer-book it was determined to subject it to a complete revision by which everything that implied a real objective presence of christ in the eucharist should be omitted the second book of common prayer was submitted and approved by parliament fifteen fifty two and its use was authorized by royal proclamation it was to come into force in november fifteen fifty two but late in september when some copies of the book were already printed the council issued a command that the work should be stopped until further corrections had been made it seems that by a new rubric inserted by cranmer communicants were enjoined to receive the communion on bended knees and john knox who had arrived lately in england and was high in the favour of the council objected strongly to such an injunction as flavouring a papistry notwithstanding the spirited remonstrances of cranmer the council without authority from parliament or convocation obliged him to insert on a fly-leaf the famous black rubric which remains in the book of common prayer till the present day 
except that in the time of Charles II a change was made by which corporeal presence was inserted in place of the real and essential presence, repudiated in the first form of the rubric. One other matter was considered by Cramner as necessary for the success of the new religious settlement, namely the publication of an authoritative creed for the English church. The great diversity of opinion in the country, the frantic appeals of men like Cooper, who had tried in vain to make an unwilling clergy accept their own dogmatic standard, and the striking success of the Council of Trent in vindicating Catholic doctrine, made it necessary to show the English people what could be done by the supreme head of the church at home, even though he was only a helpless boy. In 1549 Cramner drew up a series of articles to be accepted by all preachers in his diocese. These he submitted to the body of the bishops in 1551, and later, at the request of the Privy Council, to a commission of six amongst whom was John Knox. They were returned with annotations to Cranmer, who, having revised them, besought the council to authorize their publication. Finally, in June 1553, Edward VI, four weeks before his death, approved them, and commanded that they should be accepted by all his subjects. The 42 Articles represented the first attempt to provide the English Church with a distinct dogmatic creed. In the title page it was stated that the Articles had been agreed upon by the bishops and other learned and godly men in the last convocation held in London in the year of our Lord 1552. But notwithstanding this very explicit statement, it is now practically certain that the Articles were never submitted to or approved by convocation. In other words, as Gardner puts it, the title pages, nothing but a shameful piece of official mendacity, resorted to in order to deceive the people, and to prevent them from being influenced by the successful work accomplished by the fathers of Trent. The Duke of Northumberland, who had scrambled into power on the shoulders of the Catholic party, deserted his former allies, and went over completely to the party of Cramner, Ridley, and Hooper. Taking advantage of England's peaceful relations with France and Scotland, and of the difficulties of the Emperor in Germany, he had risked everything to make England a Protestant nation. He had removed the bishops, whose influence he feared, and had packed the Episcopal bench with his own nominees. He had destroyed the altars and burned the missals to show his contempt for the Mass, and his firm resolve to uproot the religious beliefs of the English people. So determined were he and his friends to enforce the new religious service, that even the Princess Mary was forbidden to have Mass celebrated in her presence, and her chaplains were prosecuted for disobeying the king's law. Once, indeed, the emperor felt it necessary to intervene in defense of his kinswoman, and to warn the council that if any attempt were made to prevent her from worshipping as she pleased, he would feel it necessary to recall his ambassador and to declare war. 1551. The situation was decidedly embarrassing, and the council resolved to seek the advice of Cramner, Ridley, and Hooper. The bishops replied that though to give license to sin was sinful, Mary's disobedience might be winked at for the time. The suggestion was followed by the council, but later on, when the emperor's hands were tied by the troubles in Germany, the attempt to overawe the princess was renewed. Mary, however, showed the true Tudor spirit of independence, and, as it would have been dangerous to imprison her or to behead her, she was not pushed to extremes. In 1553 it was clear to Northumberland that Edward VI could not long survive, and that with his death and the succession of Mary, his own future, and the future of the religious settlement for which he had striven would be gravely imperiled. In defiance, therefore, of the late king's will, and of what he knew to be the wishes of the English people, 
for all through Edward's reign the Princess Mary was a great favourite with the nation, he determined to secure the succession for Lady Jane Grey, the granddaughter of Henry VIII's sister Mary. Such a succession, he imagined, would guarantee his own safety and the triumph of Protestantism, more especially as he took care to bring about a marriage between the prospective queen and his son, Lord Guilford Dudley. When everything had been arranged, the Chief Justice and the two leading law officers of the Crown were summoned to the bedside of the dying King, and instructed to draw up a deed altering the succession. They implored the King to abandon such a project, and pointed out that it was illegal and would involve everyone concerned in it in the guilt of treason. But Northumberland's violence overcame their scruples, particularly as their own safety was assured by a commission under the Great Seal, and a promise of pardon. When the document was drawn up, it was signed by the king, the judges, and the members of the council. Cranmer hesitated on the ground that he had sworn to uphold the will of Henry the Eighth, but as the situation was a desperate one, he agreed finally to follow the example that had been set, June fifteen fifty three. The preachers were instructed to prepare the people for the change by denouncing both Mary and Elizabeth as bastards. On the sixth July, Edward the Sixth died at Greenwich but his death was kept a secret until Northumberland's plans could be matured. Four days later, Lady Jane Grey arrived in London, and the proclamation of her accession to the throne was received with ominous silence in the streets of the capital. End of chapter 2, part 3